By the time our worship ends this morning, many of us will have had stirred up in us uh, either grief or memories of grief past, or maybe even feelings that we don't even know what they are. Death and the loss that comes with it for the living are part and parcel of life. And the feelings that are awoken in us, whatever they are, are not bad in themselves, however unwelcome they may be. They're reminders that we are alive and that the power of God is working in us, bringing us to new places, ever new places, on our journey toward our own end in the nearer presence of God. In the divine comedy of Dante, the Beatitudes, Jesus' Beatitudes, play a prominent, almost liturgical role in the section on purgatory. Peter Hawkins, who lectured here earlier this year and is a Dante scholar, has pointed out, pointed out this role where a soul reaches a point in purgatory of being able to lay down the burdens of his or her ego-driven sin. And then the angel chants the Beatitudes. Blessed are you poor, calls, uh, calls the angel. And it calls for the response. For yours it's the kingdom of God. But no such antiphon is sung in the story. The response is embodied in the newly impoverished penitent, a living beatitude ready for the reign of God. And so it is all the way through. Blessed are you who hunger now, with the response being embodied and implicit, a soul ready to be filled with God's unspeakable love. And when we're in grief, either for those we have lost or brokenness in our lives that can never be restored, blessed are you who weep now with the promise that you will embody the laughter and rejoicing that is a sign of the reign of God. So on this day, we're surrounded by extraordinarily rich images, both of the worlds to come and also the glory of the faithful who will endure. I confess that many of these images taken by themselves move me far less than they might. The saints triumphed in their bright array, the uh, sitting around the throne of the Lamb, singing eternal praise in the heavenly New Jerusalem, a happy home. What does not leave me cold in the least is the reasonable and holy hope that these images point to or embody, the hope that the God who made us for love in the first place can bring new life even out of death. And so the consequence of faith, the consequence of trusting God today, here and now, is not that death is overcome. Death, it is observable, will come to all of us. The reality is that we face finitude. The consequence of faith here and now is not that death is overcome, but that the power of death is overcome. The sting of death is no more. And death is not the last word, not the final victor in the battle for what really matters in this life. I came across this extraordinary thought, beautifully written thought, in a novel called Tinkers by a man called Paul Harding. He won a Pulitzer Prize for this novel. It's really a meditation on the relationships between fathers and sons, three or four of them as, they, as the time of their deaths. And here, one of them, Howard, 
is chopping wood. It's early in the morning, it's cold, and he's thinking to himself, your cold mornings are filled with heartache about the fact that, that although we are not at ease in this world, it is all we have, that it is ours, but that it is full of strife, so that all we can call our own is strife. But even that is better than nothing at all, isn't it? And as you split frost-laced wood with numb hands, rejoice that your uncertainty is God's will and his grace toward you, and that that is beautiful and a part of a greater certainty, as your own father always said in his sermons to you and, and at home. And as the axe bites into the wood, be comforted in the fact that the ache in your heart and the confusion in your soul means that you are still alive, still human, and still open to the beauty of the world, even though you have done nothing to deserve it. And when you resent the ache in your heart, remember, you will be dead and buried soon enough. It's beautiful. What, what Howard's doing at one level, he's trying to sort out what's going on in his life, given the reality of human finitude, given the reality of death, which comes to us all. There's a tendency in some Christian theology to read the story of the fall in the first chapters of Genesis and to think that in that story it is death which is the punishment for the sin of Adam and Eve. And if so, then death is part of the fallen world and death itself is what has to be overcome. But if we read the wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs and Job and so on, for a, a robust understanding of creation, a theology of creation, then we see that death is a part of life. It's part of the givenness that we deal with, part of the creation that God looked at and judged to be good. And so the consequence of sin is not death as such, but our fear of death, our horror of death, our imagining that death is the last word, and our fear and horror of the loss that the death of those we love entails for us. The problem that God seeks to overcome is not death. Death means change. Death means loss, certainly, but death also means new possibility and new life. Uh, finitude is not the problem. The problem that God seeks to overcome is not death. It is the sting of death. It's the power of death in our imaginations, the power of death in our lives that God seeks to overcome. And once we grasp the truth that is unveiled in the life and death and vindication of Jesus, then it becomes possible for us to live as though death were not. To live as though death were not our horizon and to know and to live knowing that death is not the last word in life. So once we see that Jesus is the victim of the powers of this world and he nonetheless decides that death is not the worst thing in life, then we see for ourselves a new possibility which can be the source and ground of our hope. In our story, he's vindicated when he's given new life in the resurrection. And so the source of our hope is the unspeakable and utterly trustworthy love of God. When we begin to live as though death were not, 
we become signs, embodied signs of real and holy hope. We become people to ready to risk things as economically absurd as giving stuff away and practicing generosity. It's idiotic, but it's liberating when we know that death is not the last word. Or in the economics of the kingdom, we can forgive an insane thing to do at one level. It changes nothing much about the past, but it potentially changes everything about the future when we can forgive. Even hope itself is, is, a, is a, a wonderful, risky thing as we find God trustworthy for life today and tomorrow and even forever. And so it's for reasons such as these that we can look at death, look it square on, that we can celebrate the death of those we love, even as we mourn our loss, recognizing some victory of faith, some victory of trust that means that death has lost its sting and need no longer rule our lives. When we have hope, then we can start letting go. We can let go of those we love but see no longer. We can continue on our own journey of laying down the burdens, the ego driven burdens of sin that lead to brokenness and regret and continue to be purified in the warp and woof of our lives, each of us becoming a sign of reasonable and holy hope in a world that is unbelieving and a world that is still held deep in the thrall of death. We become signs of the promise. We become the response to the Beatitudes, blessed are you who weep now, for your tears become laughter and your seriousness and sadness become a kind of holy levity and a joy as you are prepared for, nearer pres for life in the nearer presence of God. And so today, as ever, we pray, responding to the gospel, giving thanks for the victory, for it is a victory, of those who have gone before, trusting that the love who made us for love will also lead each of us from strength to strength in the pursuit and the service and the joy of the reign of God. So in silence and in thanksgiving and in response to the gospel, let us pray.